Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. Ed, welcome and Happy New Year. Happy to New Year, my friend. Yeah, this is our first show of the new year, and folks, we are so excited. We are absolutely honored to have with us Adam Davidson. He is an American journalist focusing on business and economics issues for National Public Radio. He's currently uh, one of the co-hosts of Planet Money. And previously, he has covered globalization issues such as the Asian tsunami and the war in Iraq. He's won the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize, uh, several other major awards, kind of amazing. Peabody, DuPont Columbia, and the George Polk Award. Adam writes the weekly It's the Economy column for the New York Times Magazine. He's also written for Harper's, The Atlantic, GQ, and Rolling Stone. And he has given a TED Talk that I highly recommend. And uh, Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. It's great to be here. Thank you for uh, taking the time out to do this. We really appreciate it. You're our first guest for the new year, so this is just a great way to kick in the new year. Thanks. I'm honored. I'm thrilled. So you, in your bio, it says from 1988 to 1992, you studied uh, and got a B.A. in religion and the humanities at the University of Chicago. So, Adam, how does somebody with a B.A. in religion and humanities end up an economics reporter? You know, it's funny. I, I When I studied, I'm, I'm not a religious person, I'm uh, but, but I thought I, I felt this desire to figure out, you know, what how people um, what what made people tick, what made societies tick, and I thought religion would be a great tool. And and I actually found it not that helpful a tool. I really enjoyed getting my degree, and I find religion fascinating. But the big transformative effect for me was being in Iraq uh, in the days right after the war, um, in the early days of the U.S. presence there, and. Uh, you know, I went thinking, oh, it's going to be all about Sunnis and Shiites, and 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 that's how I'm going to learn, understand it. And and I realized that much of the conflict in the Middle East, whether it's Palestinian-Israeli, whether it's within Iraq, between countries, it's really about basic economics. You know, scarce resources and how they're distributed, and that's what people truly cared about. And I kept noticing that, you know, you could get you know, Arabs to talk about how much they hate Israel or Sunnis to talk about how much they hate Shiites. But if you wanted to get someone really worked up and really excited, you, you just talked about their op- job opportunities and their work opportunities. And, you know, most of the Middle East countries are very dysfunctional economically. 
And that's really the source of, I think, a lot of the, uh, the crises that we keep seeing. So, so that really converted me to economics being the, the main tool that I use to understand how people tick and how societies work. You know, that's great because we kind of are of the same mindset along. I think economics has a ton to say about human behavior. Um, and, and in fact, maybe just as much as psychiatrists do. Yeah, I, 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 you know, 20 years ago, I would have strongly disagreed with you. Now I think I would strongly agree with you. Yeah, maybe a lot more. In fact, I think if you look at some of the greatest economists, um, you know, either living or dead, the, the real fascinating ones are the ones that try and study human behavior. Not, not, you know, it's not a predictive science in terms of where the stock market's going to be next year, but it's really trying to understand why we make the decisions that we do. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a point I try to make to friends and family, and I, I don't know if I've convinced anyone yet, but that, uh, you know, they think, oh, I'm interested. I don't care about the stock market particularly. I don't care about Wall Street particularly. What I care about is how how people function, how, how they function both individually and in large groups. And, yeah, I, I think economics is so helpful in thinking that through. Well, that's great. Well, listen, I know we talked back in July. I think you were working on an article and, and we had a great, I remember it being a great conversation because I think it lasted for quite a while. And, and then, um, you wrote an article that was published in November 12, 2014 called Welcome to the Failure Age. And, um, this is, you were gracious enough to mention Verisage Institute and then, of course, Jason, Jason Bloomer. Um, but that was a very interesting article because you kind of toured this uh, Silicon Valley and you said how boring innovation looks up close. <laughs> but it, it was a great article. What, 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 it, what, what was your major takeaway from that? I mean, my major takeaway is, is this idea of failure is such a helpful lens through which to understand this new economy we're in. And, and I think, uh, you know, I, I'm a big admirer of your work and as you know and, and have studied a lot of, of your writings and, and I think um, you know we see the world very similarly and, and the way I would put it is um, that and, and and I'm always looking at ways to kind of understand this the period of transformation we're going through and I, I found failure to be so helpful so so the basic way I saw it is before the industrial revolution and um, what did uh, Deirdre McCloskey call it uh, on, on your podcast, the great, uh, the great enrichment, the great enrichment. Yeah. Um, that, you know, most people throughout history, failure was an omnipresent. It was always there. Uh, most people throughout history, you know, could not survive two bad winters. They, they die of starvation. And, um, most people throughout history were, were just on the knife edge uh, of survival. And when you look at religion, when you look at family size, and you look at how every aspect of life, it was all around the terror of the inevitability of failure. And, um, you know, we had lots and lots of kids because we knew that half of them would fail to live to adulthood. And, um, and we knew we ourselves would eventually, our bodies would fail, and we'd need at least one or two of those kids to take care of us when we were old. We, we, uh, stuck in tribes and clans so that we could kind of diversify our risk a little bit. So failure was just a central part of life. It's a central part of, of religious organization. And then we have this great enrichment period um, of the 20th century where, for at least some people, those lucky enough to live in industrialized nations, um, 
living in large, you know, working in large corporations, they were buffered tremendously from failure. They were buffered from the market. They were able to, you know, kind of be cogs in a larger machine and failure was no longer just breathing over your neck because of the great enrichment. They had, you know, uh, more than enough food, more than enough shelter. And then, you know, they, you know, people wanted more consumable goods and, you know, more discretionary income, but, but basically the, the basic stuff was taken care of. And failure became this very rare idea. You know, it's this shameful, horrible thing that might happen once in a lifetime to your uncle or something that everyone talks about in whispers. And I think we're entering an age where failure is omnipresent again. It's, it's all around us all the time, but it's no longer, it shouldn't be something we're terrified of because it doesn't mean we're going to die. It just means, um, you know, in, in the course of our lives, we're going to have, we're going to have to try stuff. Um, it's going to have, you know, we're going to have to be comfortable with the fact that it might fail and then move on to the next thing. Um, and, and, we're going to have to have sort of risk mitigation strategies throughout our lives. We're going to have to, you know, the 20th century kind of financial life cycle where you have an earnings phase um, from, you know, 20 to 65, and then you have a distribution phase. I'd expect that to be more, become more kind of volatile and, and more frequent where maybe, you know, at 28, you, have, you, you, you lose your job and so you go back to school and then you, you spend a lot of money, but then you make a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's my basic argument that, that, those who learn how to embrace failure, not be terrified of failure, harness failure, those are the people who are likely to thrive in this new economy. Right, and I think that's an excellent point. You know, I always point out, you know, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, market-tested supply and innovation or whatever, but it's a profit and loss system. And a big part of it is creative destruction. And we tend to look at the creativity and ignore the destruction. I mean, if you look at Silicon Valley, we focus at Facebook, Twitter, all the successes. And I, I think that kind of leads to a confirmation bias where it's kind of, it'd be kind of like walking into a VA hospital or a, you know, a veterans of war club or something and say, well, see, war doesn't kill people. Look at all these people living. But right. Sil- Silicon Valley rests on a massive graveyard. Most companies do fail. Most products and books do fail. Most companies don't make profit. And that failure is an essential part of the system. You know, Ed and I teach professionals, and we ask a deceptively simple question, Adam. You know, we, we point out the three factors of production that everybody learns from a basic econ textbook, land, labor, capital, right? Land throws off rents, labor throws off wages, capital throws off interest, dividends, cap gains. And we ask people, where do profits come from? I'll ask you that. Where, where, where do profits come from? Um. I, I, they, they seem exogenous to that system. I mean, they're um, they're from innovations. You know, the, 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 uh, it makes me think of the um, Robert Solo thing. The that we don't know where growth comes from. It's this exogenous variable. It's this technology that you know that the economic models mostly don't don't include. But or can't I want to hear what you say. Well, I, profits come from risk. From risk, that, right. Yeah, from risk. That's, yeah. I mean, they're, because they're not guaranteed. If you want guarantee, throw your money in a T-bill. The interest rate is kind of guaranteed. Profit is the, is the rent for the, un, you know, for the unguaranteed, for the risk-taking, because not just innovators and entrepreneurs make profits. So, um, but right. it, I mean, it, if you it, handed me two countries and said, you know, which country do you think is flourishing? 
and I'm not, the only information I'm going to tell you is how many, how many businesses fail. And one country has very low failure rate, and businesses tend to survive for decades. And the other has lots and lots of entry and exit, lots of businesses failing, no one's starting. I'm definitely going to pick the second one, is that's the flourishing economy. Bingo. Um, and the first one is maybe a fairly corrupt system, or it's a heavily government-managed um, economy, like, you know, European economies where um, there's an awful lot of rent-seeking behavior because, and, and you know, it, that might be a great system for the people who happen to be running the companies that aren't failing, but it's probably a pretty bad system for everyone else. Right. No, I think, I think that's exactly right. That's a great, great point. You know, one of the things, too, that you talked about in that article was how Xerox actually invented the visual operating system and the laser printers and the Ethernet, but they weren't able to capitalize it and, it. and it reminds me of what Andy Grove from Intel said. He said, you know, disruptive threats come inherently not so much from new technology, but from new business models. The problem with Xerox was they couldn't figure out how to fit this computer into their business model of copies by the page. There was no meter you could put on a computer, right? So they, they couldn't figure it out. And I guess it took Steve Jobs to really take that technology and do something with it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a standard, like, disrupt, disruption problem where you got, you know, you can just imagine the Xerox salesman of the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. I mean, these guys are making a fortune. Everything's going great. Why in the world do they want to hear what some hippie nerds are playing without in, in California? Like, we've, we've got a system that works great. I, I don't know how to charge for that other thing. So it may, in fact, have been a short-term rational choice. It probably was. But obviously, it was a long-term disaster for zero. Right. And, and you know, th- thank heavens for these business models. I mean, and, and maybe when we come back from this break, we'll, we'll talk more about some of the business models that are so disruptive right now, like like Napster, Craigslist, and, and think of the Google driverless car. Uh, so we'll get your opinions on that and more, and we'll get Ed in here, too, and he'll, I'm sure, want to ask you some questions. But, folks, in the meantime, you can follow our show by visiting us at verisage.com slash TSOE. And we will put up show notes from our interview with Adam and we'll, we'll link to his TED Talk and some of his other articles, which we highly recommend that you read. In the meantime, you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at verisage.com. And you can follow the show live at hashtag AskTSOE. And that's where you can, uh, if you've got a question for Adam, let us know, and uh, we'll try and get it into him. So in the meantime, we'd like to take a break and listen to our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. What makes great leaders? Results? A lasting legacy? Is it making a difference in your life or maybe the lives of others? I lead. 
The Leadership Connection with host Dr. Linda Sharkey will bring you the practical tips and tools to make you an extraordinary leader, and by doing so, build a better, more successful, and more profitable organization. Our show is all about you, the leader that you can be, and the culture that you can create. Tune in to I Lead, The Leadership Connection, live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise we're talking with adam davidson and in his bio he lists american journalist and i would be I think a little bit uh, short-sighted if I didn't ask you, Adam, about what your thoughts are about what happened in France this week with these uh, these journalists, uh, you know, cartoonists, and uh, your thoughts on on free speech. Well, I mean, obviously, it's unbearably agonizing. I I, I spent New Year's Eve with some friends. I, I mentioned before I spent I spent about a year in Iraq right after the war and was Middle East correspondent. Um, so traveled a lot in the Middle East around 2002, 2004. Um, and, and, you know, I, I used to, before I had a kid, I, I would go to a lot of trouble spots. And that entire industry has changed. I mean, it, 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 believe it or not, that first year in Iraq, we, we lived fairly freely. We were able to move around the city. I was able to travel throughout the Middle East to Syria. You know, I'm, I'm a Jewish guy. And, you know, I, I felt like, you know, naively, but I, I felt safe. I felt okay. And I felt like, yes, there was a handful of crazies out there, but the vast majority of people I interacted with were, um, were I could have a conversation with, maybe not agree on, but, but, but I felt open. And the entire industry of journalism has changed because of so many people, including several of my good friends, were killed by those extremists, those, you know, Salafi, Wahhabi extremists, and, you know, I do think they represent a minority of Muslims, but um, journalists don't travel as much. Journalists don't speak as freely. Journalists are terrified. And, it, you know, it means we're going to understand each other less, that we're going to understand the world less. It's, uh, it's awful. And, you know, I think it's probably long-term the people who will suffer the most are the people in the Middle East. We're talking a lot about economics who are, you know, are going to be further cut off from global trade, et cetera. So anyway, it, it's just, just, just awful. <laughs> I don't, I don't have anything else to say. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. I just, it just gets me to thinking though, because I think there's a dichotomy about what's happening in the U S to a certain extent. I mean, you, you, you read about these uh, colleges that institute these, these free speech zones <laughs> uh, and where, where uh, may, and you know, we don't, we don't want, we pass laws about hate speech uh, and and things like that. Yet, here's 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 people who are speaking out. There's there just seems to be this very interesting dichotomy that's going on between we're trying to, in a way, curtail speech, uh, not through the violent methods, obviously, that uh, the Muslim extremists have done, but in in a lot of ways, we we curtail it as well. 
Yeah, and that, I'm getting at our broader discussion about the future of the economy. Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to equate like racist views to like exciting, fresh economic ideas, but um, <laughs> but broadly speaking, having a very free flowing range of conversations in which people can fail, can say stupid things, and be shot down and um, you know, that's where great ideas come from. Like, I've spent a little, a decent amount of time in China, and something a lot of um, Chinese folks I've talked to, a big conversation there. I mean, in America, we look at China almost like this inevitable giant that's just going to grow bigger and bigger and devour the world. And many, many people in China are fairly skeptical of that and, you know, point out that Chinese growth so far has been catch-up growth, where China is just basically taking technologies that exist in other parts of the world and applying them and doing it very well and doing it very fast. And, um, but China is not really expanding the range of human knowledge or the range of, you know, business plans or the range of, um, of, of business products. And, and that real growth, you know, when the U.S., when you hear the U.S. economy grew by 3%, that basically means human beings know more now and are able to do more in the world than they did last year. When China grows 3%, that just means China learned more from the U.S. the things we already knew, or from Germany or Japan or whatever. Um, and there's a big discussion in China about whether the society can accommodate the kind of free-thinking, free-talking um, exploration of ideas that will lead to entrepreneurial growth, um, you know, in a, in a country where you're afraid of the politicians, where there's cultural reasons to not speak your mind, you know, you know, do you end up with an iPhone? Do you end up with, um, you know, the Intel business model taking on, you know, the previous um, Silicon companies? And, and I think that's an important, you know, value we have here. And, and anything that would damage that is likely to have a big economic impact as well. Well, sure. And, and I think one of the points that I think I heard someone making on this, which makes a tremendous amount of sense is, uh, and this, this guy happened to be a gay man and he said, look, I, I want, I want the haters to identify themselves, right? <laughs> he, he goes, in addition, the more they talk, the more that, more that more people realize their ideas are bad. And it's just like we were talking about this idea of failure. We want, we want the bad ideas to, to in a sense surface so that we can say, okay, we, d- let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. not do that. So it's, it's a, when I was in college in the late 80s, early 90s, there, there was a big move to say that words themselves can be violent. You know, and there, there was, uh, I forget her name, uh, this professor at University of Michigan who was really promoting this idea that right. words are a form of violence against women or against gay people. Or, and, you know, I, I found that a, a, a terrible idea. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Words are words, and words, you know, you're exactly words right. are what us allow allow not to pick up and be violent against one another, right? It is yeah. semantics that allow us yeah. to to have these conversations. Well, let's move on to a little bit more uh, uplifting conversation, and that yeah. is the history of accounting. You're, uh, one of the things that you're writing about in your new book is this this history of, of accounting. I wonder if you could give us the, uh, I guess, Reader's Digest condensed version of that story. Sure, and I got this definitely give a shout out to Jason Blummer and his, his rival broadcast and his whole rival operation because he's been a big influence on me and I know Ron is his idol and hero and he stole all his ideas from Ron. So it's just a circle of, of, of 
everybody thanking each other. But um, <laughs> it's called research, Adam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, but um, I, you know, I I don't know. Two years ago, I would have told you I have no interest in the history of accounting. Accounting sounds like the most boring thing in the world. And then I started reading about the history of accounting and found out how fascinating it is, and 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 really captures kind of the the big idea that I'm trying to explore in my book and my other work, which is. So, so if you look at 19th century accounting, um, when you look at the second industrial revolution, sort of, you know, the first industrial revolution um, that starts in England is really a fairly obscure thing happening in a few handfuls of industries. So, so if we went to England in the 1820s or Muslim America in the 1820s, it's still, you know, kind of medieval rural world. It's, it's a world that, you know, moving at mule pace. And the second industrial revolution is, you know, you're talking about you know, starting, I guess, 1830s, but really hitting, hitting a hit stride after the Civil War. You're talking about big industry, big cities, trains, uh, telegraph, smokestacks, like everybody knows it's going on. It's changing life everywhere. And so what is the thing that changed? There are some, like, scientific discoveries, definitely, but what I've become convinced the main thing that changed is accounting. That uh, The example I use is um, Robert Wall, who creates really the first vertically integrated textile factory in the U.S. Um, he does this amazing thing where he figures out this very complex engineering along with this Scottish engineer whose name escapes me right at the minute. Um, he does figure out some, some like cool engineering stuff, like how to run multiple machines off one leather belt attached to a water wheel. That took him about a year to figure out the engineering. But it took him almost a decade to figure out the accounting. Because there's this new accounting challenge that he faced, which is um, if you look at the medieval world or the ancient Roman world or, or the early industrial revolution world, most business is basically buying and selling, or maybe buying things and doing one operation. So I'm buying um, cotton and I'm uh, turning it into yarn, or I'm buying yarn and I'm turning it into a textile, or I'm buying textile and turning it into clothes. So basically, I'm buying something and then I'm selling something. And so as long as my the price I pay is less than the price I sell for, I'm making money. Accounting is fairly simple. I mean, they about double entry and, you know, there is some advance, but it's fairly simple. But when you get, as soon as you get into a vertically integrated operation, you have this major challenge, which is I could buy cotton and then there's a group of, there's a cotton gin process and there's spinners turning um, the fiber into yarn and there's people weaving that yarn into textile and there's people cutting that textile into clothes. So I could sell the clothes on the end and, and for more than I pay for the raw cotton, but lose a ton because the people along the way are inefficient. And this was just a new human problem. We didn't have it before. And it was a problem with Robert Lowell, who had maybe 100 employees. Um, by the time we have railroads and we have businesses with thousands of employees spread all over the country, just figuring out how to count this stuff, how to make sure that... Um, we can make a living and then how to do a little bit more complicated. How do I figure out what my living is going to be over the course of the next year or two or three? And then how do I present that information in a way to other people so they'll give me money? So accounting just unleashes so much productivity. It unleashes, you know, 
modern finance, the, you know, the whole futures industry that started in Chicago in the 1850s that allows for people to do all sorts of things. It's like this amazing time travel where you're able to create the promise of future growth and then fund that future growth. It's like you're borrowing from the future to fund the growth now, which people in human history have never been able to do before. So really, accounting creates the great enrichment. It creates the middle class. It creates all this stuff. And then, um, and accounting is like just people solving problems, figuring things out. And then by the 1920s and certainly by the 1930s, um, accounting just becomes so standardized, so regulated, so compliance-oriented that it stops being this wild creative solution mechanism and just becomes a formal reporting standard. So by the 1950s, like accounting is just this boring, stupid profession for not particularly ambitious or um, exciting people. Um, and and I think, you know, what Ron Baker and, and, and uh, Jason Blummer are doing is trying to kind of bring that creativity back into accounting. I know creative accounting is a scary, scary term. But, it, but I think that, that accounting, the basic beats of the accounting story really apply it to lots and lots of industries, which is exactly the, the book I'm trying to write. Well, excellent. And after the, our next break here, perhaps we'll pick up on this theme and ask you about something that Ron and I have stumbled across in the last couple of years, which is the Stanshi uh, smile curve, because I think it directly relates to what you're talking about here. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll come back and talk about that. But first, if you'd like to get a hold of us here at the show, please send us an email at tsoe at verisage.com. Alternatively, you can hit uh, and it's no longer pound. We got chastised by our friends in Australia who said we can't, we shouldn't use pound, but we should use hashtag AskTSOE. So thanks for the reminder about uh, that from that. And we will, we will c- come back after this word from our sponsor, Azamba. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Workplaces are only as strong as their teams. Teams are only as strong as their individual members. Are you seeking a better way to take your business to a higher level? We're here to help. Listen for Leading with Social Emotional Intelligence, Building Trust Through Intentionality and Vulnerability with host Glenn Harris. Together, we'll explore the five key behaviors of a cohesive team and other concepts designed to keep your team working smarter. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Adam Davidson, one of the co-hosts of Planet Money Podcast and uh, the writer for the New York Times Magazine weekly column, It's the Economy. And Adam, you were talking about the history of accounting, and since I'm a recovering CPA, as I like to say, I, I can't let this go by, but... Um, one of the things that's really interesting, and, and you said this, I believe, in the podcast with Jason that you did, was that compliance kills innovation. And, and I think this is one of the problems with the accounting profession. I actually think to reform the accounting profession and make it more innovative, make it more valuable to society, it's got to lose its monopoly. It's got a state license. And, and you know, economists don't like monopoly. And so there's some radical proposals to, you know, I think that makes sense to get rid of the monopoly. What, what do you think about that? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, when economists look at licensed professions, including doctors and CPAs, um, you know, economists automatically see restriction of trade. That, that is, um, it might have other benefits. You know, I, I, I guess I probably don't want to live in a world where just anyone can say they're a doctor. Um, but I also know that the way CPA licenses work, uh, the way doctor's licenses work, are very consciously and deliberately designed to maintain high wages by keeping, you know, an in-group and an out-group and and making sure that the in-group is never so big that wages fall. And I think that is just that in and of itself. But then on top of it, um, the the idea of compliance kills creativity is... um, if you look at accountants in the 19th century, first of all, there wasn't really a clear thing what an accountant is. A lot of these people were engineers. Some of them were business people. Some of them were just like smart guys in, in, in an office who um, were constantly like, hey, what if this works? Maybe this will work. I'm sure there were tons of major failures, and, you know, we haven't heard about them because those businesses went out of business. But as soon as you have securities law in the 30s and you can go to jail for violating generally agreed upon accounting practices. Um, you know, you're, why in the, for, you get two things. First of all, I get a guaranteed paycheck for just being a CPA. I just, there's always going to be work. And two, if I do it all at all that differently from anyone else, I might go to jail. Um, like, obviously I'm not going to be very creative. I think this ties into our bigger conversation about censorship, which is, you know, a culture of compliance, a culture in which there's kind of preordained um, range of accepted behavior, whether that's a dictatorship or that's just a, a corporation or a university that has just a very heavy, um, in, uh, strict culture, I think you're going to see similar things. And, and this is something a lot of innovative companies really struggle with. I know Google struggles with it. Apple struggles with it. You know, it, it's one thing to be two guys in a basement um, or in a garage, like, dreaming up new ideas and trying out all sorts of things. As soon as you have, you know, thousands of employees and reporting structures, just compliance, broadly speaking, I'm not now talking about legal compliance, but just broadly speaking, um, you know, it, it, it becomes a real challenge. And I think that's one of our big challenges, both in the U.S. and the rest of the world. How do we free people up to have creative solutions without 
you know, destroying things. I mean, I'm not saying, so therefore I want no standards for, for accounting books, et cetera. But maybe I do think you don't have to have a CTA. I don't know. I, I think you and I probably agree on that one. <laughs> well, certainly monopolies are less innovative, and I think that's one of the big problems with the profession. But um, let's get let's get into your other article that I re- we recently read of yours called uh, "Making It in America," and it was really interesting because you profiled a, a, a manufacturing plant down in Greenville. South Carolina, which I know that's where Jason Blummer lives. And, and my dad also lives in Anderson, by the way, so like 20 minutes from there. Um, but it's the standard, uh, what is it, profiled, you profiled standard motor motor products. Standard and motor they make, product, yeah. Yeah, they make precision fuel injectors. And I know you, you, you kind of focused on one of the unskilled employees, Maddie, but I want to talk to you just in general about, you know, America being ranked number one or two in manufacturing if you if you look at output. And the output has risen one-third in, in the last decade. But you also point out in the 10 years up to 2009, factory jobs lost basically all of the gains they made in the previous 70 years, some 6 million jobs. And we're about now employing the same number in manufacturing today as we were at the end of the Great Depression. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, statistic. And I guess my point is the purpose of an economy is not to create jobs. There's a great story by Milton Friedman touring China. I think you'll appreciate this since you've seen the country, but some bureaucrat was walking him around a construction site showing him this great high-rise and apartments and office buildings they were going to build. And he said, uh, and, and, and they're all using shovels. And Mountain looked at him and said, well, why don't you get some earth-moving equipment in here? It could be done a lot sooner, a lot quicker, a lot, be a lot more efficient. And the Chinese bureaucrat looked at him and said, well, this is also a jobs program. And Melton Friedman said, oh, you want to create jobs? Well, great. Take away their shovels and give everybody spoons. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, think, I mean, I think, I, I think there's a... There's a there's very a, strange conversation about jobs. I think, uh, I mean, a point I try to make is, I mean, to a business, a job is a cost. So that's like saying, you know, I really want to create electric bills or something like that. Um, right. and, and so there's a, you know, I, mean, I obviously I want to live in a country where there's lots of people are employed and most people have good jobs. I mean, that'd be great. I'm not against jobs, but I don't know that it's, you know, I, I, I think... This, this is where, you know, you, you want to look at the supply side. Like, you, you want people who have the skills. You want a, a society in which people have skills that, and abilities that are able to create more profit than they cost. That, 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 you know, that's the win-win. That's where the employer and the employee both benefit. from. So, so if, if you're saying, I want to take people who are unskilled and can't improve the productivity of a business, but I want them to be paid a wage, an arbitrarily set wage, above their level of increasing productivity, then that's, that's just a transfer payment. And, you know, there's a conversation to have about transfer payments, but, but it, um, you know, that, that, that's not a way to build a, a thriving economy on term. Right. I, I mean, and I get that. I'm, I'm only talking about the economics of it. We can talk about the cultural aspects, which, which you do towards the end of the article. What are some of the reforms we could make here? And I really like how you kind of went through and addressed some of them. You know, you said, well, some of the things that have been proposed, such as, you know, higher tariffs or, or currency reform in, in China or subsidies and tax credits, you know, if you're manufacturing, these, 
these probably aren't the greatest reforms to look at. Um, I, I just think, Adam, that when, when we see on the news, there's so much emphasis put on jobs, jobs, jobs. And I just think, you know, that's the wrong emphasis. If, if you have a vibrant economy that's creating, that's taking a lot of risks, even like you say, if there's a lot of failure, jobs will kind of take care of themselves. I mean, I, for one, am thrilled that I don't have to work on a farm. You know, half of us used to work on farms, and now it's, what, 2%? And yet we feed the world. We grow enough food not only for ourselves, but for practically the rest of the world. And I'm glad the blacksmiths are gone, and I'm glad the telephone operators are gone. I mean, it's kind of like you say in your failure article, you know, things change. That's the whole purpose of creative destruction. It's not just about moving things around and being more efficient. It's just about satisfying consumers and I'm no longer satisfied with a slide rule and an electric typewriter. Right. Although I will say like that there's a problem. I do think there is a problem. Now the solution I'm not sure what the solution is. But I, I think the problem is that it is very it is very easy for me to tell a story in which twenty percent of Americans say do fairly well going forward. Actually do better than ever before. Um it's very hard for me to tell a story about people who just have a high school degree or people who dropped out of high school or people who, for whatever reason, can't uh, or don't have the, the ability to come up with fresh ideas or don't have the kind of personal ability to fail. So I do feel like we are, you know, right now today, there's, depending on how pessimistic I feel, something like 80 million Americans who are probably not going to see a lot of economic growth. It just seems to me. Like it, it's not realistic to talk to sit them down and say, hey, you need 21st century skills, you need 21st century ability. I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I know, Ed, for you, but the more government, the worse. I think a lot of government intervention is pretty bad, and, and, and I'm against it. I'm probably somewhere in, in the middle where I, you know, I probably am more comfortable with some role for government. Um, and I think there's certainly lots of ways to get government out of the way. If, um, but, but I do think there's a real problem. I do think there's a bunch of Americans, you know, I think for the world, the 21st century is going to be better. Just, you know, people all over the world are going to get richer and richer, and that's awesome. But I do think Americans, I think there's a huge number of them where it's hard to tell a story where their lives don't just get worse and worse. And I don't, I don't know what happens, you know. I, I, and that, it bums me out. I don't have a solution. Certainly in Paris, we only heard them worse. I certainly think. Um, you know, some kind of government jobs program would hurt the worst. So I, I don't think there are any, you know, easy solutions. And it might just be we just have to wait for their kids to learn that they live in a different nation. You know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what happens. Well, we have to define what what worse potentially is because you know I think it's a it's a mistake to just look at wages or even the the what they try to massage that into in in real wages because you also have to look at the standard of living you have to look at the fact that you know that there that most of most of these folks have cell phones or air conditioning or all of these things because the standard of living has gone up as well too and I'm, look I'm not dismissing the problem too I, you uh, if you if you've listened to our previous shows you know that I'm I'm, I'm a big believer in in charity not not government because of of I think it just does a better job. Right. Yeah. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Haiti after the earthquake there. And when I would come back to America, it was, it was actually hard for me to do American recession stories, which I had to do as a reporter, because truly the poorest American is doing better than the average Haitian by far, you know, and, um, and, and just understanding America's 
absolute wealth in a global and historical context is it, it does make it hard to think that, you know, wage stagnation in America is the world's biggest problem. That being said, you know, I think it's a bummer if some huge number of Americans are, are probably going to, yeah, you're, you're probably right. They'll, they'll die of fewer diseases, they'll have better medical care, they'll have better gadgets. But, but, but I'd still like them to be, you know, I prefer to live in a society where the majority of people are employed in exciting, interesting careers, et cetera. And I don't know that that'll be the case in the next 10, 20 years. Right, as would I. And I, and I think, you know, that, yeah. that's where it comes down to the, the cultural thing. And, and where, it, where it does become about, uh, you know, individual choice to, to make, it, make a difference in your life and the lives of others. But we do have to, we're coming up against our last break here. So we want to make uh, just sure to remind you that you can contact us at TSOE at VerisAge.com. Also, hashtag TSOE if you want to ask a question of our guest, Adam Davidson. And But next, we're going to have our, our, our last break and a word from our sponsor, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers. Your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. If you are a woman who is in a transitionary state of your life, such as a divorce, marriage, upcoming retirement, changing jobs, or even careers, there are usually many financial decisions that you may be faced with. On Women Be Wise, host Darlene Gilmore can help with some important advice on a variety of subjects for women in almost any state of their financial lives. You'll want to listen every Thursday morning for Women Be Wise at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're honored to be here with Adam Davidson. And Adam, you know, we've been talking about jobs and, and of course, there, there are all sorts of cultural issues that come into this conversation as well, such as, you know, educational reform and all of that. But one of the, one of the recent graphics that I, Ed found this, I think, a couple years ago now called the Stan Chi Smile Curve. And it's this basic curve on, on the left axis. You have value added from lower to higher. And folks will post this on our show notes. And along the bottom is time. And then it's kind of a, a big smile curve, if you can imagine that, where 
it's basically saying the value added to a product, and we like to use the iPhone as an example, Adam. The concept in the R&D obviously is done in Cupertino, California. If you turn your iPhone over, that's what it says, you know, assembled in China, designed in Cupertino, California. Um, the branding and the design, these are all very high value added uh, you know, inputs. And then, of course, you've got the manufacturing. In this case, it's the assembly because I do draw a distinction between assembly and manufacturing. And as you climb up the other side of the smile curve, getting back to higher value, you've got distribution, marketing, obviously Apple's brand, its sales and after service support. And I guess my point is, if you look at the two sides of the smile curve, that's all knowledge work. Uh, what you might call skilled labor, uh, or just, you know, working with your mind, whereas the assembly can be done by unskilled labor. And I think one of the things it points out is I personally rather live in a country that designs the Boeing Dreamliner, not the country that assembles it. So I guess, what do you think of the Stan Chi smile curve? Oh, no, I think it's absolutely right. I think, um, it, it, I, I saw this with my own eyes. Um, recently, I, I went to this factory in upstate New York, and they made like the little metal parts that connect diodes and other things to um, a computer chip. So it's like this incredibly tiny little metal piece that you know we're constantly surrounded by in every electronic gizmo, but you know not the most sexy business in the world. And it's this big, big old-fashioned factory with big stamping machines and, you know, 90 or 100 guys, mostly guys, working there in big blue overalls, pounding out these little metal pieces. And way in the back, there's this guy, Janos, who's this Hungarian engineer. And what they explained to me is Janos comes up with new ideas for how to connect parts um, to computer chips and some new theories, new approach. And he comes up with the idea, and within six months to two years, it's being manufactured by someone in China for a fraction of the price. So they just get this tiny little window where they can charge a premium, and it's enough of a premium and enough of a window that as long as Janos keeps coming up with ideas, um, they can keep this massive factory afloat, even in you know a very high-tech state, high-labor state like New York. And um, and it just occurred to me, like, this entire giant building, like, if you went there, you wouldn't even notice Yano. She's just sitting in the back at a laptop. But this entire structure is basically an extension of his brain, that all the value that's funding all this work is just his brain and his thinking. And, um, and, and I would guess that 100 years or 10 years from now, probably the factory will be in China, and Janos may still be, though, in America. And, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, there is this idea that, oh, how can we be a country that doesn't make stuff? And first off, we do make stuff. We make a lot of stuff. China just passed us like two years ago as the world's number one manufacturer. But we're still, we do make a lot. People don't realize that. But second of all, it, we could be a country where we make nothing. If we were in a, if, if, you know, that's not some kind of economic impossibility. That, that might even be an extremely prosperous country. Now, the problem is for low-skill workers, it's a little debated in economics, but I think the general view is low-skill workers do tend to do better in manufacturing settings than they do in um, retail. So the general idea is when manufacturing goes away, 
higher skilled people. Like, you know, my grandfather worked in a factory and I don't. And I've got a college degree and I'm doing better than I would have if I followed in my grandfather's footsteps. But my cousin who didn't get a college degree, he's doing worse. You know, he's left in more like retail jobs and stuff like that. So, so there, there, there are issues when you lose manufacturing, but yeah, as a general rule, um, you don't want to be the guy in the factory floor. That, that, that's not where the value is being added, and therefore that's not where the, where, where the money is. Right. No, that's a good point. I, I think one of the things, and as we talked about on the break, one of the things that might help uh, low-skilled, unskilled people is freeing up, you know, occupational licensure. I mean, it's it's just ludicrous that you need an occupational license to 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 do hair braiding, or to do floral arrangement or interior design. I mean, this is an enormous impediment. Shampooing to, in Texas. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> yeah. It, it's an enormous impediment for low-skilled people to step on the economic, you know, bottom rung and work their way up start a business i mean look what's going on with uber and the taxi cabs and and all of that so i i think removing that and of course educational reform which is a whole separate topic might might help some of this uh displacement effect from disappearing manufacturing jobs and also just people understanding that you get paid based on the value you personally add and 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 despite, and you get paid more when the value you're able to add is different from the value other people are able to add. And I don't know that anyone, how many people learn that at school or are told that. I think that, um, that just knowing that, like you got to figure something out and, 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 and actually you got to set up a system where you're constantly figuring that out, where, you know, the solution you come up with in 2015 might not, might work. It's kind of like Janos and his connectors. It might work for a year or two, but then you got to come up with something else. And, right. and I don't know how you imbue that knowledge or understanding into an entire society, but that if I could flip one switch to make America better off, that's what it would be. Everyone's got to figure it, out mm. what, you know, what their hustle is, what their added value is. Right. And, and, and Kip, oh, Tindell from, Kip Tindell from the Container Store, uh, I don't know if you've ever studied, studied them, but just a fascinating guy and a fascinating company, you know, talks about how, the fact he only, only hires in, in a retail space great people because great people do three times the work as a good person and a good person does three times the work than a, 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 you know, a, a not, not good person. From a productivity standpoint, he goes, well, you know, yes, I pay them twice as much as the average average salary in retail, but I get nine times the productivity out of out of them because they're right. they're that much better. And and you know, it's it's just a, a really interesting story that they they actually spend twenty percent of an associate, you know, part time associate's time is spent in learning mode where they're learning new stuff. Uh, I will look at. There's a great book, The Good Job Strategy by Zainab. On, which I highly recommend, um, which it, it, it explains how to operationalize that kind of approach. Yeah, it's just it's a it's a good good story. So follow up on him, and he's he's one of these guys who like John Mackey is a, he calls himself a conscious capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that Thomas Sowell has taught me, Adam, is that um, you know an idea is more valuable than its mere execution, and I think it's another thing that that. Uh, the smile curve points out again. I rather live in the country that generates the ideas rather than just merely executes them because uh, countries that generate more ideas like your Yoshi example uh, have a higher standard of living. But I know it's a very counterintuitive thought because every, Oh, we, we can't erode our manufacturing base. Well, nonsense. I mean, yeah, th theoretically we could. And, and it, 
you know, it, yeah, it would cause some displacement, but that's not how you measure the standard of living by how many physical things. This kind of goes back to the materialist fallacy, I think, th- that attitude. Yeah, and it also, you know, people say, oh, if we keep growing, we're just going to burn away the environment. But I try and point out that growth in a country like the U.S. is generally fairly environmentally friendly. It's more friendly. about ideas. It's not about, you know, big steel plants or coal-fired engines or something like that. Right, right. Well, Adam, we're up against it, but uh, it, this has been so great. We thank you so much for being our first guest of the new thank year. Thank you, Adam. And where can yeah, folks thanks, find you, Adam, so if fun. they want to learn more? AdamDavidson.com and NPR's Planet Money. Um, and then when I, my book comes out, whenever that is, like a year and a half from now, buy it. <laughs> well, we'll have you back when that comes out, for sure. Oh, believe me. If you'll come back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Adam. And Ed... What uh, what's on on store for next week? Next week we have another guest coming up, Ron, and that is uh, Jules Goddard. And uh, Jules is a, is a the author of a book that you and I are, are both reading or or have read, uh, Common Sense Uncommon or not Common Sense Uncommon Nonsense. And uh, he is a fellow at the Center for Management at the London Business School. And we look forward to having Dr. Goddard on next week. Excellent. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, visit us at www.verisage.com slash TSOE. We'll have show notes with Adam and links to his where you can find him online and some of his articles. And uh, we'll see you next week here with Dr. Jules Goddard. And folks, that will be a great interview, so we look forward to that. See you next week. Mm-hmm.